rents are too high, folks aren't earning enough money, and there aren't enough units available for it to truly be a competitive market where a renter has some negotiating power. I'm Esther Agbaje, and I represent House District 59B in the Minnesota House of Representatives. It's an area that covers parts of downtown in North Minneapolis. In this role, I get to work with community members and local leaders to develop laws and policies that affect the state of Minnesota. I started a podcast in order to include more people in important and needed conversations that affect us all. Hear from voices that are familiar, involved, and influential on issues impacting our community. I invite you to listen in on those community conversations and join in by letting me know your thoughts. Um, welcome to another episode of Conversations with the Community. So today we're talking about housing, which is very near and dear to my heart. It's part of the reason why I got involved in politics in the first place. And so I'm really glad to have with me two attorneys who work in the housing space, particularly um, supporting people who might be facing eviction, as well as other issues that uh, tenants come across in our rental markets. And so with that, I'll have our guests introduce themselves. Um, Mariah, we'll start with you. Well, thank you for having me, Representative Egbaje. I really appreciate it. And um, I've also had the joy of working with uh, you uh, as a volunteer in our housing court for quite some time and as a part of a committee that Volunteer Lawyers Network runs. So um, just really, really pleased to see everything that you're doing. Um, so let's get my name's Mariah Kruger. I'm the housing program manager at Volunteer Lawyers Network. Um, we are a small nonprofit that in our mission is to protect and promote the rights of low-income Minnesotans through the power of volunteers. So we work with the big law firms, the solo practitioners, corporations, everyone who has private bar lawyers who has some extra time and wants to volunteer to help out um, people who otherwise couldn't afford a lawyer. What it looks like on the ground is VLN partners with our legal aid organizations in Hennepin, Ramsey, and Anoka County to provide free legal services to low-income tenants and some landlords. Um, and it's been a point of pride with us up until this point anyways that we've been able to make sure that everybody in Hennepin, Ramsey, and Anoka County at those initial appearance calendars who wants to talk to a lawyer and can't otherwise afford one has been able to talk to a lawyer before their case proceeds. That's awesome. I really, as you said, I really love Volunteer Lawyers Network. They were the first group I went to when I started practicing again in Minnesota to get closer to the people and get more involved. Uh, Mary, how about you? Thanks for having me. I'm Mary Kachorik. I'm the managing attorney of the housing team with Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid in our uh, Minneapolis office. Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid or Legal Aid has represented renters in Hennepin County for over 100 years. We also have offices in St. Cloud and Wilmer, and generally there is a legal aid office in all 87 counties in Minnesota. So we only practice in central Minnesota, but we have sister organizations that cover the entire state. Civil legal aid um, has many practice areas. I'm in housing. We also work with um, folks who need help with things like government benefits, immigration, family law, consumer law, basically anything that, um, you would go to court for that isn't a criminal issue is something that legal aid could help you with. 
we help low-income folks, um, seniors, and people with disabilities. We've partnered with VLN for a long time to represent renters facing eviction in Hennepin County. Um, in my practice, we also do affirmative cases. So if a tenant needs repairs done or is facing housing discrimination, those are cases that we would file affirmatively as well. We also help a lot of people who receive housing subsidies. So that can be like a Section 8 voucher, living in a tax credit property, living in public housing. Um, there are a variety of rights and additional rules that go along with those programs. And so we're able to help tenants um, with those issues as well. That's awesome. I really support, you know, civil legal aid. I mean, you know, we all know that if you're facing a criminal situation, you know, you have the right to an attorney. But in, in a lot of this, these civil areas, which come up a lot, people don't necessarily know that they have an opportunity to find an attorney, even if they don't necessarily have a right to one yet, though. I know there are a lot of people around the country working to try to make that happen eventually. So one of the things I always like to ask, too, is kind of like what brought you to this work? It's very specific. And so um, it's kind of a good question to see, like how, especially if you're a lawyer, like how do you get involved in something like this? Mary, how, how did you find your way to Legal Aid? So I actually worked for Legal Aid in college. <clears throat> I went to the College of St. Benedict in um, outside of St. Cloud and Legal Aid um, because we cover, cover every county in Minnesota, has an office in St. Cloud. I worked for an organization called Central Minnesota Legal Services, which um, also covers Central Minnesota, but gets a different funding stream. So they're, they're technically a different organization than MMLA. Um, but yeah, we had a work study program, like a um, kind of social justice. I don't remember. It was, I don't remember what it was called, but it was some kind of thing where you can have an external placement with a nonprofit as like your work study job. And I worked at CMLS and I got to know some clients and did a lot of filing and shredding, but also got to learn a little bit about civil legal aid and um, was pretty struck by the level of need that was occurring right in the community where I was going to college for the last four years. Um, and yes, and then I kind of always wanted to be at Legal Aid. I went to law school intending to work at Legal Aid. I worked at Legal Aid um, during law school. I had a fellowship after law school. And my journey to housing was kind of circular. I um, worked in the public benefits unit and in our litigation unit after law school. Then I worked for the state for a couple of years as an unemployment law judge with the Department of Employment and Economic Development. Came back to Legal Aid, um, where I ran a statewide office called Legal Services State Support that does awesome work expanding access to justice. And then I was up for um, a new challenge, and I had never litigated really before, so I decided to come to housing in 2018. That's awesome. Mariah, how did you find yourself with VLN and in the housing side? A little bit by luck, frankly, but um, I'd always been volunteering through different organizations starting really before I got my foot in law school, I was volunteering through SMURL, Southern Minnesota Regional Legal Services, which is another of the sister legal aid organization in Ramsey County in Southern Minnesota, and um, volunteered with Volunteer Lawyers Network. And I did just private practice law for a while. And um, everywhere I went and did like private practice, I kept on trying to turn it into social justice work, frankly. Um, so finally, I decided I better just do full-on social justice work, and I had been volunteering with VLN for quite some time at that point, and um, I've been with VLN five years now, and 
it's really nice to be able to work in an area that I'm passionate about. And I would think my passions have always been just about keeping our, our legal system just. And I don't think if we, if only those that can afford lawyers get a lawyer, um, I don't think our, our legal system can remain just, frankly. So I think it's really upon all of us to make sure that that we keep our system as, as strong as it is. Just I want to say, so I'm like, I work with the private bar and I try to get them to volunteer their hours. And there is a, an ethical commitment to do 50 hours for every private pro, private lawyer, but it like we need legal aid and the private bar volunteers are a great supplement to legal aid. Um, but without our legal aid organizations who are the staff attorneys who are trained to do some of the what can be extremely complex work, um, our system would be even more in trouble. So I'm super proud of what I do. I love what I do, but I just we wouldn't be there without legal aid. So I think it's really important to remember that like legal aid is the foundation um, for our, our free work to people who can't afford it. And then volunteer lawyers, we really we bring that to areas that it might not otherwise be able to be because of costs or take advantage of, of special areas of expertise in the private bar or things like that. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I'm, I'm glad that we have a pretty robust program here in Minnesota, or at least in the Twin Cities area. And so we're just always looking for ways to expand. So that's the, that's the plug if you're an attorney listening that you should sign up and, and volunteer. Um, so back to kind of housing and kind of like the legal side of housing, you know, for a lot of people and constituents that I have, you know, they may be housing insecure. And so they often come with a lot of different questions or, or comments about kind of what they're facing. And, you know, now, especially now that we're in this like post-vaccine stage of the pandemic, the pandemic is not yet over, but what are you guys seeing and hearing um, most commonly from tenants, especially right now? Mary, we can start with you. Um, we're seeing a lot of the same stuff that we saw before. So obviously there's way more evictions now. I think um, the pandemic, a silver lining of the pandemic is that we did have an eviction moratorium and um, we're able to kind of pilot a concept of um, having more protection for renters in the eviction space. So during the pandemic, a renter could only get evicted if they caused um uh, serious property damage or posed a significant threat um, to other residents. And from where I sit as a tenant advocate, that should just be the standard all the time. No one should be forced out of their home without a good reason. And um, now because of the you know time that we are at in the pandemic, non-payment evictions have opened up again. And we're seeing a ton of cases in Hennepin County um, that were kind of put off while that moratorium was in place. So there's this huge backlog of evictions. We're getting tons of calls from folks who um, have been living in their rental home and have fallen behind in rent and are the eviction process, because it's slowed down a bit, are coming to court now and facing an eviction on um, a non-payment that might be a couple months or even several months old at this point. We're also seeing, you know, the same kind of issues that we saw um, during the pandemic regarding um, habitability. So in Minnesota, there is a, I like to say that a lease is a two-way street where the tenant agrees to pay the rent and the landlord agrees to provide a safe and healthy home for that renter. And um, 
we help a lot of renters who um, have problems with the conditions in their home. That can be anything from, I don't have any heat, I don't have any water, to pest infestations, to, um, you know, utility issues, like security issues with doors or windows, kind of anything that can go wrong in someone's home we help renters with. And sometimes it takes um, taking a landlord to court to get changes made. Because of the restrictions during the eviction moratorium, we saw a lot of deferred maintenance where a landlord couldn't file for non-payment of rent. And so we were seeing more renters coming in um, with uh, landlords who weren't making repairs that were requested. And then we also saw a fair number of illegal lockouts. And an illegal lockout is when a landlord changes the locks, um, takes off the door, turns off a utility, does anything that makes it so that that renter can't live in their home anymore and they have to stay somewhere else. Um, another term for this is like a self-help eviction. So we saw um, and continue to see, you know, self-help evictions or lockouts, um, repair cases, and then just a ton of evictions. Mariah, are you seeing kind of the same things from your guys' perspective or is there anything else coming up like a, a common request by tenants or anything like that? No, I think I think right now is a tough time to be a renter, um, just because with the protections uh, in place and the additional rental assistance, and now those safety nets are gone. So it, it's a different feeling out there, and we're seeing we're just seeing a lot of evictions, and the rental assistance isn't isn't there, frankly. Um, it is there in pockets every once in a while, but it's not that real consistent source of of rental support that there was during the moratorium. Also, there's just an increased cost of living right now. I mean, we've all been to the grocery store recently, and it's just astounding how expensive staples have become. And rent, uh, the cost of rent has also been increasing um, significantly. So um, one thing I just we see that's frustrating is large corporate landlords who have come in and purchased up properties, and they're distant. Um, it's hard to get a hold of anybody to make repairs. Um, and just that frustrating communication and really these, these non-existent landlords who are, you know, shell corporations someplace else who really just are in it as a money-making venture and not in the business to provide homes to people, which is sad and frustrating all the way around. Yeah, that's definitely true. We see so much of that, um, not only just in Minnesota, but around the country of just a lot of these corporations just buying out these homes. So then they're not even available for the homeowner's market, much less. And then, you know, pushing the price very high so that even renters, it's hard for them to get in there and then also to stay there once they do. Um, there's very much a sense that there should be a continuous return on investment in a housing property, but that isn't always the case if you are the renter or sometimes even the homeowner. So, um, you know, with question. So, with that, one of the other things I um, I think would be good to kind of let people know is the eviction process can kind of be confusing, right? And um, a lot of people get scared once they get that notice of, well, what do I do next? Where do I go? Can one of you just give us like a brief like overview of what that process is supposed to look like? Um, and then if and then the other one if, if maybe can kind of talk about ways that that tenants have to to push back or fight back on the process. So Mariah, if you want to kind of give us an overview of what that eviction process looks like. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, you bet. Um, um, so, so 
Minnesota is unique in that outside of St. Louis Park, uh, Minneapolis and Brooklyn Center, um, there doesn't need to be any notice prior, prior to an eviction to being eviction filed. filed. Uh, so once that eviction paperwork is served upon a tenant, um, and it can either be personally served or it can be served upon that tenant through something called mailing and posting where they try to serve it to you, but they can't find you. So they mail it to you and then they post it on your front door. Um, and then the eviction hearing, and it's a first hearing in the case, is seven to 14 days after that, um, after the service takes, well, the summons has been issued, frankly, but after the service, it's about seven days after the service usually. So both parties need to show up in court, the landlord and the tenant for that initial hearing, it's called. And then it's a it's an admit or deny hearing similar to the criminal setting where um, you're really not there to give evidence into court, uh, to make legal arguments. It's really just to determine if the case can be settled or if it needs to be set for a trial. Really what needs to happen all along the way is the parties need to be talking about settlement if they can. Um, right now, uh, and historically, about 90% of eviction cases were for non-payment of rent. And I think we're back in that setting again where most cases are for non-payment of rent. Um, a lot of times it really is just to see if that tenant can come up with the rent and if the landlord will give the tenant enough time to come up with the rent. Um, in Hennepin, Ramsey, and Anoka and Dakota counties, there are lawyers available right at the initial appearances. So if you show up and qualify, um, you can talk to a lawyer and that lawyer is going to take a look at your case to see if the service papers were, the service was done correctly and the correct papers were filed, um, if the complaint has made the allegations that it needs to make, um, and then if there's any other issues that should also be brought up at that time, like retaliation would be another one, um, if it's a non-payment of rent and there are a lot of repairs that needs to be made to a unit, that's another defense that can be raised. Um, so then at that initial appearance hearing, if it's not settled, it will be set for a trial um, to, if you want to talk about repairs not being made, then you can bring in proof of those repairs. Or if you want to talk about this being retaliatory, then you can bring in your evidence about it being retaliatory. And that usually happens, it's supposed to happen six within six days of the hearing date. Um, right now, you know, in Hennepin, there has been a long lag. Um, some or evictions will get filed and there's been as much of a four month wait. That's gonna be changing. Hennepin has opened up a whole bunch more calendars. So instead of hearing 90 cases a week, they're gonna hear 150 cases a week. So, um, you know, it's hard to say how long it's gonna take now from when the, the landlords, you know, gets that, uh, files the eviction and gets it served in a court date and it could be coming up much more quickly. Yeah, what did I bring? Go ahead. <laughs> no, it already sounds like kind of a quick process. And right now, the only thing kind of providing people that delay is the fact that there are just so many there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Any other pieces, Mary, that you want to talk about? Or otherwise, kind of, if you kind of want to talk about what are the ways that people can kind of fight back against their eviction to try to keep their home? Yeah, I have a couple things I might just tack on to what Mariah shared. Um, just for context, Minnesota is tied for third fastest in the nation in our eviction process timeline. So the world does not have to be this way. There is, you know, most other states give tenants more time to get connected with resources, get caught up on their rent, continue talking to their landlord before they're actually evicted and put out of their home. 
So I, I always want to just make sure that folks know that it doesn't have to be this way, that eviction laws are way better in other places. And Minnesota prides itself on being this progressive, wonderful state. And we have some of the worst eviction laws in the country. So I always give a mini rant about that. Um, another That's fair. Thing, we need to know. <laughs> another thing that sucks about Minnesota is that you have an eviction record the moment your landlord files a case. So they can file a case for no reason at all. Their complaint can have a whole bunch of lies in it. You can, um, and you still have that on your rental history until you convince a court to erase or expunge that eviction record. Um, so a lot of folks think if I make a deal with my landlord, I get caught up. I don't have to show up to court because we made this deal and I can pay and stay. But you still have an eviction on your record unless you ask the court to take those additional steps to erase or expunge that court record. Um, and I, everybody knows that once you have an eviction on your rental history, it's almost impossible to find housing. And I'll note that the world doesn't have to be that way, that in many other places, an eviction record is only um, entered into someone's rental history or made public once that person actually gets evicted. And there are um, so many problems with the system that we have now, but that is one of the worst. Um, I would also just like gently push back on settlement always being a good idea to talk about with your landlord. Like in an ideal world, I think a lease, like I said, is like this two-way contract, right? Where I agree to pay the rent, you would agree to provide me with this home. But in reality, it's not an equal um, contract. The landlord always has so much more bargaining power in that situation because the stakes are so much higher for the renter. Right. If a renter loses an eviction case, they and their family are put out and become homeless. If a landlord loses an eviction case, they can just file another one. Or if that person leaves and moves out abruptly, they can just get another tenant and put them right in there, especially in the housing market that we have in Minneapolis right now in Hennepin County. It can like having good communication is like always a good thing and would be great. And there are many, many landlords that work with tenants and are responsive to repair requests and do um, a great job in that contract, in that relationship. Um, but there are enough landlords who don't, who um, are discriminatory, who are retaliatory, who um, take advantage of folks who may be coming out of homelessness, who may have disabilities, who may have English as um, a second language or ling limited English proficiency, um, may have kids, public benefits, kind of all of these um, factors that can make someone more vulnerable in housing can make that landlord-tenant relationship even more imbalanced than it already is. So I don't know, this is like the like tenant advocate litigator and me being like, no, take them to I court, mean, have your court trial. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't know, just because part of, you know, part of the reason why I like this conversation is because you're right, like it, our laws don't have to be this way. And there luckily, or well, from my from where I sit, fortunately, there's many more legislators, I think, who have actually had experiences as renters with absentee landlords with landlords who don't do the right thing and have also had experiences with landlords who do do the right thing and can kind of figure out like what it's supposed to look like. So hearing from you guys about like 
yes, you know, this is what happens on the ground when an eviction gets filed. These are all the consequences that come from it. Makes it so important that this is something that we need to be continuing to push for at a policy level, whether it's at the city or state, or hopefully our federal government will soon get involved in this type of stuff too, um, to make sure that our, our first our first priority is, is keeping people housed. You know, and if I could just add a few more things, and I'm so glad we have you here, Mary. I mean, <laughs> I'm so glad you are here. And um, I think one of the keys to that settlement piece is uh, representation, or at least being being screened by a lawyer, right? Because a lot of times, if you're not, the other side is a lawyer. Um, and tenants most times come in without a lawyer um, and the lawyer drafted the complaint and they served it and they did all these things and then the tenant comes in and it, so it's it's not an even playing field so I think we really do need to make sure that tenants have representation um, all the way through so that the the when people are being exploited or taken advantage of or those types of things that there's somebody there to, to stand up for that. The one thing that um, I just wanted to point out too is the disparate impact in all of this as you were talking about eviction expungement and eviction expungement is something that Volunteer Lawyers Network does a lot of work in. Um, and when someone has an eviction on the record, it's hard for anybody to find housing with that, but it's particularly hard for, for people who are looking for affordable housing. And that's because the affordable housing market is so much tighter that any sort of blemish on a record becomes this absolute bar to finding housing. And when we wrote these statutes and our eviction expungement laws and how they've developed, we didn't, I don't think we meant that an eviction on someone's record means that if you are low income or looking for affordable housing, you can't find housing now. And then you're forced to um, rent from someone who will rent to you and that's the landlord who's going to take advantage of you or charge you double or triple deposits as long as the Sydney ordinance doesn't stop them from doing that. Those sort of things. And I think we've seen the same thing in, in housing. Like if we look at the primary like renter population, um, the people, primary population looking for affordable housing, there's a disparate impact too. And um, so when we're when we're not protecting that population, we're we're already like putting that impact on people. That's just not equally spread across um, the populations. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, we do. I think the stats show that uh, the people who are most likely to be evicted are are black women and usually black women who have children. And so then already, you know, if you compound that with some of the other um, social disparities that we have makes it just really hard for Black families in particular, but I think families of color and low-income families to create that stability that they need to keep their kids in school or, or keep their jobs or, or make sure they're living in a healthy space. And so I think that goes to the root of many of the problems that people want want to tackle in our society. And just, and um, I think Matthew Desmond talks about it best, but the cycle of evictions. So um, if a family is living on a tight budget and has some situation arise, a medical incident, deaths in families, as funeral expenses are a big one, sick children so adults can't get to work, some sort of instabilization or some something that makes their income not stable. Um, so then they're behind on rent, they get evicted. Um, and they're if they're not able to take advantage of um, financial resources that are available through economic assistance or emergency assistance, um, then they're they're evicted. They have an eviction on their record. They're extremely vulnerable at that point. And with that eviction, it makes it even more difficult for them to find housing someplace else. So they reach out. Um, they, that's when the like 
the slumlords come along, right? They're preying mm -hmm. on people's desperation. They need to find a place to live. They've got seven days to do it. They have an eviction on the record and no money. So then they sign a lease that's way more than they can pro probably pay. It's not in good condition. So what happens about three months later, they end up with another eviction on their record. So it, you know, it really is this cycle that we need to help people get out of um, and finding that stable housing that someone can afford that's quality, um, that has a landlord that's responsive, does so much to like help bring people out of, out of the cycle of poverty, frankly. Mm -hmm. Do you guys find that in the work that, or in the cases that you're seeing that a lot of these evictions or a lot of these disputes are happening more in apartment complexes or like multifamily housing complexes, or are they happening in single family homes that are being rented or is it pretty even? What are you guys seeing? I'd say it's pretty even. I think Minneapolis is a little different than other cities our size and that we do have more single family homes and duplexes and triplexes. So um, I help a lot of renters who are in like single family homes or duplexes. And then a lot of our multi-unit buildings are these like two or three story buildings. Um, that said, we do have um, a couple high rises through um, Minneapolis Public Housing Authority. And there are some newer developments, um, newer buildings that have um, low-income housing um, where the buildings are bigger. But I see a pretty even split. And um, the some of the worst conditions, I would say the worst conditions I see are in single family homes and duplexes that especially in um, North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis, the housing stock is so old and in such disrepair in some of these neighborhoods that um, the conditions can just be really heartbreaking. So, I mean, and there are there can be really bad multifamily properties um, too, but those are in my practice, the saddest ones. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really, it's just really difficult. So Mary, you had talked about um, supporting people with affirmative cases to their landlords. It's, I guess, when the tenant has the opportunity to take their landlord to court because their landlord isn't upholding their end of the lease. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the ways that people can proactively take their landlord to court to try to hold their landlord accountable and what those options look like in Minnesota? Yeah. So I think the first step is to talk to a lawyer. You're going to hear this from both of us like a hundred more times. But um, talking to a lawyer is a great first step because unfortunately there's a big difference between what is fair and what is a legal case. So mm -hmm. a landlord can be a huge jerk and do a bunch of awful stuff, but if the reasons they're doing that are not within the categories outlined in the discrimination laws, it's probably okay. So um, there are, you know, I've talked a lot about habitability. So there are a couple different ways you can get into court with um, our landlord who doesn't make repairs. If it's an emergency, you can file an emergency repair case. Um, you just need to give 24 hours notice that you're going to do it. And then you can file your court case right away. For repairs that aren't an emergency, you can file a court case um, after the landlord has 14 days notice in writing. Or if like the city has come out and given an order to correct with a due date, if that due date has expired, then you can file um, a repair case. You can also file a case if a landlord locks you out or does like a self-help eviction like I talked about earlier. 
And then finally, there is a law in Minnesota that allows either a group of tenants, a neighborhood association, or even a municipality to file a case against a landlord on behalf of a group of tenants or an individual tenant. Um, and those are called tenant remedies actions. And um, if your landlord is discriminating against you, there are a couple different avenues you can take. Um, you could file a complaint with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights. In Minneapolis, you could file a complaint with the Department of Civil Rights. You can file a complaint with HUD, the um, federal agency, Housing and Urban Development. Or you can file a court case saying, my landlord's discriminating against me um, because I am a member of a protected class. In Minnesota, um, the protected classes, you can go to the um, Minnesota Department of Human Rights website and it lists them all out, but it's things like race, gender, national origin, um, sexual orientation. Um, two big ones that come up in housing are disability and um, familial status, like whether you have kids. Another one that comes up a lot is whether you receive public benefits. A landlord can't discriminate against you because you receive public benefits. So you could file a case in state court. You could file a case in federal court um, saying my landlord's discriminating against me and I'm entitled to, to this relief or to, um, and that can look like uh, you know, money compensation, it can look like the court ordering a landlord not to do something or to do something differently or um, different kinds of uh, relief you can ask the court for. And Legal Aid does a lot of those cases. Um, our office has partnered with the U.S. Attorney's Office, with the ACLU, um, with the Attorney General's Office to bring bigger cases against problematic landlords. But yeah, talk to a lawyer. Long story, long story long, talk to a lawyer. <laughs> No, that's good to know that there are avenues. I think one of the things people sort of feel frustrated by is that that you might have to wait until they have an eviction before they can bring up defenses. Um, but it's good to know that there are some avenues, especially in the repair space, that you can proactively go and, and file a suit yourself or, or find an attorney and, and have them help you do a case. So that's really helpful information. <laughs> um I think, you know, the other thing too is, and we touched on this a little bit, especially with the rental assistance, now that the eviction moratorium has ended and, and so many of the um, safety nets that we sort of had during the height of the pandemic are, are gone and kind of just wanting to see from you guys' perspective, like what would really help tenants and, and maybe even landlords in some of these situations, especially when it comes to non-payment of rent or repair issues that are seen consistently. What are some ideas you guys have about like what could help the housing situation, particularly before these disputes arise and, and kind of are agents of chaos for, for a lot of people? I have lots of ideas. Do you mind if I go first, Mariah? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Mary. Okay. So kind of zooming out. Some of our eviction laws date back to like 1850s territorial laws. So some of the stuff that we are following today in 2022 is just like legacy crap from the 19th century. And it's time to take a critical look at our eviction laws kind of holistically and see what would make an impact. And the two, I'm sorry, I'm getting like super ranty now. <laughs> but the this two things- Okay, fired up. I, mean, I, 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 I was up. invited to to join this for my hot takes on housing justice. So. 
Um, but anyway, so the two things I think that would make the biggest difference are eliminating pay to defend and um, making the protections that existed during the pandemic um, for folks who had a pending rental assistance application in, making that a permanent change. So I'll just briefly talk about pay to defend. Um, like Mariah said, if you are in eviction court and you have really bad conditions in your home, you can make an argument to the judge like, I don't owe all this rent because my home was in such poor condition. So if I had, if my rent is $1,000 and I didn't have heat for half the month, I don't owe my landlord $1,000. I only owe you $500. And you shouldn't be able to evict me for all this rent because I don't owe it all because my home is in such disrepair. In order to have a trial on that issue, you need to pay all of the rent into the court. And oftentimes that money has been spent, especially for the clients that um, or the renters that VLN and Legal Aid helps. That money has been spent on space heaters. It's been spent staying in hotels, buying restaurant food if your kitchen doesn't work. All of these expenses add up and folks don't have the rent money anymore because they've had to address these problems on their own. And the, the requirement that you pay all this money into court to have a court trial so that you don't become evicted and your family doesn't become homeless is just so unjust on its face. It just feels so unfair because it is unfair. Like the law doesn't have to be this way. The law could say, you have a right to a trial. You can present your evidence. You can make your argument to the judge and we're not going to charge you for it. I can't think of another example in the civil realm where you have to pay to have your day in court. It just, it, it is the lowest hanging fruit. And because of the um, eviction timelines are so short in Minnesota, like the, justifi the justification for this is landlords want to have tenants to have like some skin in the game. Like this is like mm -hmm. language that we hear all the time. But if we're talking a matter of days or a matter of weeks, all this is is a barrier for landlords to prevent tenants from having their day in court to get that rid of recovery to put that family out as soon as possible. So that's the thing that would help the most. The second thing that would help the most is um, during the pandemic, there was a protection that um, you couldn't get evicted if you're if you had an application for rent assistance that was pending. So if you know you had applied for emergency assistance or or rather the COVID um, assistance, I should state that was just the protection during the moratorium. And those applications sometimes would take like months to process that you couldn't be evicted in the meantime while that application was pending. And again, this is just like common sense stuff, right? Like having that be a permanent protection because there are programs that exist outside of the pandemic, like emergency assistance, emergency general assistance. These programs can help folks get caught up on their rent. And um, there's no reason that a tenant should be put out in the meantime while the county or whatever agency processes that application. And it's a win-win. isn't there also something that comes up sometimes too about the timing of those other uh, rental assistance pots about how you kind of need that summons in order to then qualify for it. So then already the clock is ticking and they don't have enough time necessarily to process your application. So then we're back in the cycle again. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, 
in Hennepin County, the there was a disconnect where whether you would be long evicted before you found out whether you if you qualified for emergency assistance. And to the county's credit, they've worked really hard to get that processing time shorter. They've had folks show up to court to get them connected with services and get those applications expedited for folks who are facing facing eviction like imminently. Um, but it's not like that in every county, and there's no reason why landlords can't wait a couple more weeks for to know whether or not this tenant can get caught up and stay housed. It's like a win-win. Like a, the renter gets to stay housed, the agency has time to do a good job with the application, and then the landlord gets paid at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. Those are my top two favorites. I'm curious what Mariah, what your top two would be if you have another list. <laughs> oh, I felt the fire coming up when you're talking about having to pay to defend. It makes no sense. Like in what situation do we say, all right, I don't think I owe you $500, but I'm going to have to pay that $500 first in order to even make my argument that I don't owe you that $500. It's just ridiculous. And it makes, mm -hmm. if you stand back and think about it, who who would do that? Um, but we, we leave that. You know, a couple other things, you know, there's a silly requirement that families sometimes are told that if they want to get into shelter that they need to have a, a writ be issued which is another one that makes me really angry every time I, I hear that one i think it's ridiculous i think our county system can be more responsive um if a, an eviction has been filed there's no reason to make them wait for a writ to get into family housing another one just back to the eviction expungement one and i just have to say like mm -hmm. if the case is completely dismissed by the court if the landlord doesn't show up in court at the initial appearance it's still on that tenant's record and it's such a black mark for that tenant finding housing going forward. And then that tenant has to, even if they want to get expunged later or taken off the record, it's a whole separate process that they have to go through. And it's a confusing process for people. So we're, you know, either you have to qualify to get a free lawyer or you're gonna to have to pay. And it's, if it's your first time filing, it's a $300 fee. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of things that just don't make sense at all if you stand back and think about them. And they've just, you know, been created over time into these things that don't match with how the world works today. And even the fact that Minnesota doesn't have any notice for to file an eviction, mm. um, people are surprised, you know, they just they don't realize that all of a sudden, and the eviction notice can be or the eviction can be filed the, the day rent is late. So if you it's paid on the first, you can be filed on the second. And then that's ding is going to be on that person's record going forward and nobody wants the system to go that way and it does, just doesn't make sense um, unless we want to evict people frankly and I, I don't think anybody wants to evict people there might be a you know a little bit of an incentive if you've read De Matthew Desmond's book closely he talks about the you know the black market incentives and the incentives to evict but um, that's just not how we want to create systems so hoping our, our wonderful legislators um, can can start to build some steam behind making changes that make sense. And I think if I can venture to guess what the courts would say about eviction expungement, it wastes a lot of their time having to, mm -hmm. you know, hear all these expungement motions or handle them. And some of these expungements are like 10 years old. Um, you know, they're doing better at trying to go through the records to get rid of some of the really old ones. But um, it's, it's a lot of extra work for something that doesn't need to be that difficult and again you have, you, know, you have that disparate impact too which at the end of the day i think all of the other reasons and then put it into like who are we harming the most in this system there's just no reason why it can't be changed 
I think sure. all of those are excellent. And I know all of those ideas already have bills lined up and have been introduced multiple times. And it is just about getting that momentum behind it to make sure that, you know, everyone understands that, that these are issues that affect real people. And these are issues that if we say we want a just and fair society, that keeping people housed and making sure that they're able to stay in their homes is the basic is the basic foundation for that. And that's, you know, that's what I found a lot in, in, in the past two years that I've been in the legislature, but also even just in, in working in and around the, house, the legal housing space. Um, people, people just want to have a place that they can call home and that they can go to at the end of the night. So, yeah, thank you for the passion and the fire on that. I, you know, no apologies necessary because we need we need that passion and fire and that drive um, throughout all aspects of our systems. Um, so I guess one question um, that I'm sure people will ask, and, and I know between both of both of your organizations that there's plenty of resources, but are there other resources that you both organizations tend to direct people to if they need support either in finding rental assistance or, you know, finding maybe new housing if, if where they are isn't working out. What are what are some other resources that that both MMLA and BLN either steer people towards or can provide? I can say that uh, at our at our housing court clinics, um, when we're there at the initial appearance calendars, we are there with um, financial assistance programs. And it varies a little bit depending on the county. Um, but I think that's just a really important piece to make sure that those financial assistance programs are at the eviction hearings because, you know, that that's when everybody is there, right? And it's sort of the moment. We want to get people to financial resources before the uh, calendar, but to the extent that that's not possible or it just doesn't happen, making sure that we have those resources right where people are at at the time that they need them most. Um, and, and that's really probably the primary one. Um, Housing Link is an organization that we send a lot of people to who are looking for affordable housing units. Um, Neighborhood House, that's a Ramsey County. They're also at the a calendar um, in Ramsey County. It'd be great to have something more housing related assistance at the Hennepin County. Um, there's been some attempts to try that in the past, but there hasn't been anything that's been incredibly successful, but that would be, that would be super helpful to have more housing navigation resources for people. And the other thing, because when housing has gone, gone awry, there's so many other things that are going awry also at the same time. Um, you think about people trying to keep a job while in housing transition. Um, there's great research on the health impacts of uh, both living in stress and poverty and the, the loss of homes. So really making sure that we're helping people the best that we can at the point that we really meet them. And that's frequently at the initial appearance calendar. Yeah, I would just tack on um, another resource, um, kind of going with our refrain of talk to a lawyer. Homeline is a great resource. It's a free hotline um, for renters statewide, and you can call and talk with a lawyer and get just some general information about what the law says about your issue. LawHelpMN.org is a great website that has Know Your Rights information for housing, but then also for um, things like, again, like immigration, disability, public benefits, all these um, civil legal issues that that's a great website to know your rights and get connected with organizations. 
Um, and then there's a great booklet that the Minnesota Attorney General's Office puts out um, talking about, I think it's called like the rights and responsibilities of landlords and tenants. Um, that has a really nice guide um, for both, you know, landlords and renters describing what your rights are. I agree with Mariah that there is a gap in housing navigators that that, you know, from where we sit at court helping folks with an eviction or with a, you know, problem with their landlord, we just see them at one point, um, usually at like the peak of a crisis. But getting connected with um, housing is really, really hard. And there's a need for more um, navigators, social workers, folks that can support renters who need to find um, safe and healthy homes. And I would also add that there just needs to be, and another thing, <laughs> I would also just add that, you know, the root of this is not enough affordable housing. Yeah. And the reason that these landlord-tenant relationships are so unbalanced that the landlords have so much more power in this relationship is because there is such a lack of affordable housing. Um, so, you know, the root of this is rents are too high, folks aren't earning enough money, and there aren't enough units available for it to truly be a competitive market where a renter has some negotiating power. No, that's definitely, that's definitely real. <laughs> we see, um, for me, you know, I look at that as like, it's not so much a housing shortage. Like I think we have the home, we have enough homes available. There's always stats that come out about how how many homes are or how many apartments are are vacant um, compared to the number of people who are on the street or in shelter. And I think you're right. It really just goes back to pricing and figuring out where is going to be that. I don't want to say sweet spot, but where is going to be that that point in the market that we understand that housing can't just be this commodity that just increases all the time, but that we have to think about the people who are actually buying these homes or renting these homes and making sure it's a safe place for them to live, that is habitable, that they can grow there and have a family there. Um, while at the same time, yes, landlords can make money. No one is saying that they can't do that. But like, at what point does the does the profit margin, I guess, exceed the the service that we're supposed to be providing? So that's a really good good observation, I think. Yeah, and just a plug for rent stabilization. Um, you know, St. Paul and Minneapolis both passed their ordinance, um, and St. Paul just listed a whole bunch of revisions to it. But I think particularly in this market where um, inflation is huge right now. Um, and people are getting priced out of homes rapidly. Um, if we start to, that's one way that we can help protect affordable housing is by keeping those rental rates reasonable. Yeah, that's true. I'm really excited to see what St. Paul's going to do. I, some of the amendments um, were troubling. Others are what other jurisdictions have done. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Be, and then we'll also be watching a close eye on Minneapolis once they start the discussions to create what their ordinance will look like. So, and just yeah. wanted to know, uh, home line um, is not an income-based resource. So any any tenant anywhere in Minnesota can call. Um, so it really is a, is a nice resource for people to talk to a lawyer for the first brief time. Um, you know, just find out what's going on, get a little bit of an idea of their rights. Yes, that is always helpful. I find a lot of people just don't really know 
Um, and you know, the fairness aspect comes into it a lot. Mary, you said like, just because something isn't fair, doesn't mean it's not necessarily legal. So I think we run into that a lot where landlords are within, you know, what's in the letter of the law to, to do what they're doing, but, um, it's probably not very fair. And it's, um, and I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand the difference between those. So our role is to try to write fairer and more just policies. <laughs> so that way they, they make more intuitive sense, I think. Um, so, you know, as we kind of get towards the end, are there any final thoughts or, or, or comments or questions or, or needs that you would like, um, you know, your fellow policymakers to at either city, county, state, or federal level to, to kind of weigh in on to make, you know, life easier for tenants and, you know, make the system fairer and, and even supporting, you know, those landlords who are doing the right thing. Well, I'll start by thanking you, Representative Akbaje, for your leadership in this space. Um, And I know your colleague, Representative Howard, have also um, introduced some bills that would make the um, playing field much more level and much more fair for tenants. I'm really encouraged by the leadership that uh, Minneapolis, St. Louis Park, and Brooklyn Center have shown in their pre-filing notices. Um, you know, things like just cause evictions, like you can't end someone's lease unless you have a good reason for doing it, or slowing down the eviction timelines, or increasing resources for folks who are behind on their rent. Um, these are all things that would help the situation. And I am, I am encouraged. I mean, I think that there are people who are working um, like this lovely trio of ladies on this call, right? Like we're all working and doing this work and trying to improve um, this problem that I think is finally getting some of the attention that it deserves. Um, and I guess I would also encourage the judicial branch to um, look at some of its, um, some of the authority that it has within its, um, the court has its own authority, right, to run the court system. And so the court could decide to not make eviction records public until someone's evicted. The court could decide to slow down the eviction timelines. The court could decide not to require posting if someone has a defense. Um, And so I would encourage folks, you know, operating within the judicial branch to look at this problem with a um, more progressive equity lens and think about possibilities and not be stuck again with some of these arcane laws that um, don't reflect the current realities. I too would say thank you, Um, Representative Igbaje. It's just been a pleasure getting to know you and work with you over the years and and all the wonderful work you've done and continue to do. It's, um, it's such a treat to work with change makers and people with vision about how the world could and should be and the ability to work for it. I'll also make one more plug. Um, people are always saying, what can we do? What can we do to make a difference? And um, my organization, Volunteer Lawyers Network, needs legal volunteers. And we train people to um, to help those people who can't afford lawyers. And I think access to resources and access to high quality legal assistance um, is something that we do need to continue to provide to everyone, um, regardless of one's ability to pay. And if we're not gonna volunteer, I think we need to fund our legal aid staff lawyers um, and fund them well. 
Um, you can do both, frankly. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of lawyers find volunteering to be a fantastic experience because uh, you get to work with people with um, real emergent problems, frankly, in the housing area. Um, it helps people perhaps understand a way of life that maybe they've not worked with, help people um, look at problems in new ways from new directions, um, or, you know, just fighting an issue that perhaps they've dealt a lot with in their own life and now want to help other people overcome that issue too. So um, it's important that we are all, we're all in the game together and we all work towards those solutions together and there's a way for everyone to get involved. Great. Well, like, thank you guys. Can I just huh? say one more? Can I just say one yeah, more? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I just I should have led with this, but I echo Mariah in that funding civil legal aid is just a critical piece of all of this. And um, legal aid does receive an appropriation through the legislature through our legal services advisory committee. And I would just urge um, policymakers to prioritize funding civil legal aid too. That there that is a tangible um, step we can take to advancing civil uh, justice for all. Yes, we need people's time, talent, and treasure, as they as they say. So, no, but thank you guys so much. It was really good to get, you know, that information and perspective from what it's like to be in the eviction process, or if you want to put forward your own affirmative case. And then also what's just, just needed to ensure that we are providing high quality services to um, to people in our community. And so thank you guys so much for your work. Um, appreciate everything that you guys are doing. I have learned so much from you, not only just today, but in, in the work that I've been able to do through VLN. And I just really thank you so much for your time. So with that, we'll, we'll see you guys on the next episode and we'll talk to you soon.